Today's going to be a fun day, folks. Both Ron and Landon are going to come up and teach us and lead us through the last week of Racing God. Well, good to be with you this morning. As uh, Jeremy said, we'll be closing out our uh, five-week series called Erasing God this morning. And uh, yeah, hopefully it's been a, a helpful series. The, the concept with this series titled Erasing God is kind of embracing the reality that for every one of us, as you sit in the chair you're sitting in this morning, you have your own unique idea and concept of who God is that's been formed by your interpretation of the scriptures, how the, the scriptures maybe have been taught to you by the family or community you grew up within, by cultural values that have impacted you, by experiences both in good and bad ones that you've had. And that's not to say that God is different. He's a different person for each one of us. He's not. It's just one God, and he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But our understanding of him on us, not him, uh, does shift based on what has happened in life. And part of the things that we learn about who God is can be wrong. In fact, Satan is on the prowl seeking to distort our understanding of God. And so there's actually portions of our concept of who God is personally and uniquely that need to be erased and then replaced with the truth of who God is. And so throughout this series, as we've studied the the scriptures together, we've looked at four different tools that can help us know what parts in our mind of who God is need to be erased and what to replace those uh, things that we've come to believe with. And so the, the first tool was simply this community. God's design is not for us to follow him alone, but to be the church together. And when we're united in our following of Jesus, the community of believers, the church can help give clarity as we have alignment about who God is. You can go to your brother and sister in Christ, then over time ask questions and go, here's what I feel God wants from me, or here's what I'm feeling or thinking or beginning to believe is true about God. Are you in agreement with that? And as a church, we can begin to guide each other to know what is true and not as the the Spirit leads us, which is actually the second tool that we talked about in our our second week in this series, simply asking the Spirit to reveal what is true about God and to remove what is untrue. And the Spirit, who is not only the comforter, but also the counselor, will bring clarity for us as to what is true and what is untrue about who God is. And then the last two weeks kind of went hand in hand. Ron talked through the the Psalms that the scriptures show us and make declarations about who God is. And so we can read the Psalms and other portions of the scriptures that make simple, clear, and concise declarations and know that those things are true about God. And then the final one was last week. We looked at uh, about 12 chapters of the, the scriptures in one sitting to see who God is over time. Uh, like I just referenced from the book of Hebrews, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. And over time, we get to see how he's consistently faithful in different cultures and contexts and different situations and environments with different languages and customs and people. He's consistent. And so through that, we can know that the Bible is not a reference book where you can go, here's what's going on in my life. What do I do? The Bible does not typically provide that for us. But through this time in God's word, we can get to know who he is so that in any given situation, we can know what to expect from him and what he'd expect from us. So those are four of the tools that we've uh, talked about thus far. Today, we'll wrap up the series talking about one final tool we can use to know what parts of God's, the concept of God we have in our minds needs to be erased and what to replace it with. And it's simply this. 
if you're questioning or considering or thinking through a part of who God is in your mind, how you're understanding him and wondering whether or not it is true, it's good to ask this question. Does this lead to good or something just arbitrarily correct? If what God is calling me into or calling me from is, I'm only, is something I'm only pursuing because I believe it's correct, not that in the long run it will also be good, then there should be a lot of questioning about whether or not it's true of the Father. And this is not a prosperity gospel kind of thing where soon you'll get a yacht and all the stuff and pleasures that you want in this world. It's Dang not to it, say... I'm out. Sorry, Ron. Well, we're looking to hire a new pastor, so... Um, it's not to say that there's not suffering and pain and brokenness. That's very clear in the scriptures. In fact, we're called to it. But it's to say that through all of it, whatever moment you're in, God leads us to good because he is love and he is good. And so uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about that this morning. Before we dive in, uh, there's cards either on your chairs or in the seat back in front of you. Last week we said we'd have some uh, time for questions and answers. So if you have specific questions again, specifically related to God's character. Maybe if you're wondering if something needs to be erased or maybe what it needs to be replaced with uh, during the next little bit of time this morning, feel free to write that on the index cards and then in a little bit, we'll be able to pass those forward and hopefully Ron can answer some of those questions for you. (laughs) Is it hot? I'm hot. Okay, all right, good. Bad day to wear like a wool sweater. I don't... It's been hot. It's, you can now be aware of that, and there's nothing we can do. And nothing, so, yeah, just, no. That's great observation. <laughs> Thank you. We'll, we'll get the coolers figured out that's soon. That's good. I just noticed everybody's using their question cards as fans. As fans. And that's so, why we, that's our whole yeah. AC plan is just index <laughs> cards good. on a budget. Um, this whole thing about the goodness of God is a really big deal, because I guarantee you that give it enough time, and this will be an area in either your life or the life of somebody that you know that will come under attack. Uh, It's surprising to me how often the enemy goes after the goodness of God um, to kind of erode that out of our belief about him. If the enemy can get us thinking, um, you know, God is, is true, he's real, he is correct, but he's probably not that good, then I think the enemy's really got some ground to work in. Um, We know that atheism and uh, just an absence of any sort of belief in God is really prevalent today, but maybe what is even more common is, yeah, God's probably there, he probably exists, uh, and he's powerful, he's correct, but he, he probably isn't that good. And that to me is kind of like, um, oh, like vegetables. You know, like we, we all think, you know, some of you love vegetables. You're the weird ones of the group. The rest of you, normal people, like you know that vegetables are good for you. It, it is a kind of an undebatable, correct statement to say that broccoli is good for your health. And yet, how many of you actually like broccoli, believe that broccoli is good, that's a whole different ballgame. I have, I have a really, really quick gag reflex, too much information, but um, so any sort of food, but especially vegetables that are mushy, I cannot do it. And I know that the correct thing is a lot of broccoli will be good for me, it'll be good for my insides, it'll be good for longevity, it'll be good for health, 
but I don't think it tastes good. It's mushy. And for our whole marriage, like we were been, in Anna's just for not our, yeah, yeah, right, just, correct. You just kind of pointed at me. Yeah, and said, sorry. Oh, so, <laughs> I just wanted to clarify in case yeah. anyone's new here. <laughs> it's, it is hot in here. Um, I, I've suffered for like 15 years, like eating mushy, steamed broccoli. And then if you go to a restaurant, typically what they do is they've, they've steamed it, they've microwaved it or whatever, and then it comes out and, and it's, it's neon green and then instantly mushy. But a miracle happened. And I was like, the heavens opened, I heard angels singing because my wife, she baked broccoli. Who bakes broccoli? But she was also tired of the mushy, and so she put it in on a, on a cookie sheet. Is that what it is? <laughs> and then baked it, which didn't make it mushy. It cooked it, but it kept a, you know, kind of some sort of Christmas to it. And I was like, this is, <laughs> sorry, this is phenomenal. I love every part of this. It actually tastes good. Now, this analogy really is not going anywhere super helpful, but... It made me think, because there's so many places in Scripture that talk about, you know, taste and see that the Lord is good. And we have had maybe a bad experience where we have been served up who God is in a really poor manner. And that has led to a whole bunch of beliefs that God may be real, true, or correct, but I don't think he's good. And there's a great disservice there for me and you. And so for me, coming back to the goodness of God, when I'm wrestling through who he is and trying to eliminate some of the lies that the enemy presents about God and come back to the truth of who he is, quite simply, God is good, not just correct, is so powerful because the enemy is going to use our culture, he's going to use circumstances, he's going to use any number of things to get us thinking God isn't good. But God is incredibly good. God is undebatably good. God is the definition of good. And he is the sum and the source and the standard of that which is good. Anything that provides well-being for me and you and creation comes from the goodness of God. Anything that, that provides uh, some sort of virtuous nature or beautiful nature comes from the goodness of God. Anything that is beneficial to mankind comes from the goodness of God. God is incredibly good all the time. And that doesn't, that doesn't change, that doesn't come and go. His goodness is a constant. And now knowing that, now when I go back in and try to process through who he is, process my circumstances, or even process stuff in scripture, I must come to it with that real understanding that God is good. Now what I'm reading here, gosh, this seems weird, I understand that. But if I have that filter on first, I know God's good. So Lord, help me see your goodness in this, even in this difficult, challenging thing. Like, like ask yourself the question, when you're reading through some sort of things, was, was God still good when he allowed Job's suffering? Or did he stop being good for a little while? 
Was God still good when he did not remove Paul's thorn in the flesh? The Apostle Paul that wrote a majority of the New Testament, he makes it clear that he had a thorn in the flesh, he had a struggle. We don't know what that struggle was. But we do know that Paul pleaded with God multiple times to take away that thorn, that struggle, and yet God did not do it. So did God stop being good when he did not remove that thorn? No, he continued to be good. God's getting Paul to the point to say, you know, my grace is sufficient for you. And it's when you're weak that I'm, I'm strong. So even in the thing that was kind of a hassle, a struggle, a challenge, the goodness of God was still active and accomplishing something. This is the start of Passion Week. It's Palm Sunday today where we head into a week remembering the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem and a week that's going to lead him to the cross. The same question, was God still good when he allowed his one and only son to die on the cross? Of course he was. God's always good. It just may not always appear. We may not understand where the goodness is coming from or where it's leading or whatever, but God is good. God is good. God does good. And then on top of that, he even works for the good of those who love him. He takes all things, many of which are not good, and he works them for our good. I mean, that's the goodness of God in all these different forms. And he is good. He does actual good things. And then he takes things that aren't good in your life and my life. And he brings good out of them. That is the goodness of our God. I was reading through the, the Beatitudes again. If you have your Bible in, in Matthew chapter 5, we get the Beatitudes of coming from Jesus here, the, the Sermon on the Mount, and he opens this powerful message with uh, some descriptors, really, of the kingdom of God, some qualities and characteristics of the kingdom. And in particular, what people who are a part of the kingdom of God will look like, these qualities that we will possess. And there's some, some amazing things listed off here. There's seven, eight, nine of these, these qualities of the kingdom of God and people who belong to the kingdom of God. But listen, as we read through, some of these qualities don't sound very good at face value. But then look at what goodness God brings in a quality or characteristic at face value. It doesn't seem very good. Some of the other qualities listed here at face value, you do go, oh, go, oh, yeah, I, I, those are good. That's good. And then God brings good through good things. But he also brings some good out of th things that a lot of us wouldn't consider good at face value. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus' words here, verse 3. The poor in spirit. How many love being poor in spirit? <laughs> Spiritually bankrupt. That doesn't feel good, does it? But then look, the poor in spirit are blessed for the kingdom of, of heaven is theirs. Those who mourn, mourning, 
You're not typically mourning if something good has just happened in your life, are you? But then look at what happens. Those who mourn are blessed for they will be comforted. See, what starts to happen here is is as we experience the first thing, we will come to experience the second thing. And the second thing I would lobby for here in the Beatitudes are various expressions of the goodness of God. So if we experience being poor in spirit, we will then experience the goodness of God that comes through a blessing of inheriting his kingdom. If we're experiencing mourning, we'll experience the goodness of God in him comforting us, and so on and so forth. The gentle are blessed. That's a good one. For they will inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed. And then here's the goodness of God. They will be filled. The merciful are blessed. Have you ever had to extend mercy to someone? That's not always, it doesn't always feel good. But it allows you to experience the goodness of God. The merciful are blessed for they will be shown mercy. The pure in heart are blessed for they will see God. The peacemakers are blessed for they will be called sons of God. Those who are persecuted for righteousness. How many of you go, that's my favorite. That is so good when I'm persecuted for righteousness. But when you experience that, you can experience the goodness of God as you inherit the kingdom of heaven. You are blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice for your reward is great in heaven. The goodness of God shows up in so many ways constantly. I think so many of them we we miss. We're too busy, we're too tuned out. But God's goodness is evident all the time. He is good, he's doing good, and then he's even taking things that are not good and working them for our good. And so if the enemy tries to twist your understanding of God away from his goodness and simply to, well, I know he's God, I know he's in charge, I know he's powerful, he's sovereign, he's in control, he's correct and true, but I don't know if he's good. I can guarantee the enemy's at work there because he is most definitely good. Let that be a filter going forward. That's so good. As Ron was sharing this earlier, I was really hung up on this idea of how God is served up. We talked about the the atheism piece, but in the beginning, Satan's tactic was not to cause Adam and Eve to not believe or to believe that God did not exist. It was to serve God up in such a way that they did not believe he was good. So his active tactic with us still is likely to serve up God. Satan wants to have conversations 
uh, with us about God. Satan wants us to think about God and discuss God and feel things about God. But what he wants to do is taint and distort and twist how we think about God and what we believe to be true about him. And if we don't believe that who God is and what he's leading us to is good ultimately, then there should be a whole lot of questioning. And that's when we can go back and go, hey, in the community of believers, is this true about God? We can ask the Spirit, is this true about God? Because it doesn't seem like he's good now. Jesus invites us to ask that. Jesus, this does not seem good. Jesus, right now, you do not seem good. And he invites us to ask that question, and he'll answer it. Then we can look in the scriptures and go, is what is happening in this moment portraying God as good and leading to somewhere or something that is good? Again, I want to clarify, it doesn't mean easy, it doesn't mean prosperity off the charts, but in the end, ultimately, who Jesus is and what he leads to will be good. So uh, that's our, our final tool throughout the series that you can utilize to know what needs to be erased and what needs to be uh, what it needs to be replaced with as we think about who God is. And so we'll, we'll spend a, a few minutes now answering questions. If you uh, wrote any questions on those cards, Jeremy, if it's all right, I'll have you uh, get any of the cards that are passed this way into this aisle. And Ty, if you don't mind grabbing cards that are passed uh, from these two sections into the middle, uh, we'll answer those in just a, a couple of moments. Last week, we shared that we would... Uh, excuse me, do a little bit of time in Q&A. And so really there was kind of a theme in the cards that we got this past week. And the theme kind of tied together this tension of how can God be sovereign and in control? How can he also allow us to have some freedom of choice and be good in the midst of all of it? I think that was kind of the tension and, and primary theme in the, the questions we received. And I would kind of expect that this morning, not all of them, but many of the questions that we'll, we'll get from you this morning will have to do with that tension. How can God be sovereign and in control? How can he still allow us to make choices so that there's love? And can he actually be good in the tension of all of that? And so to answer that question, I want to go back to what we talked about last week with Lot, Abraham's nephew in Sodom, uh, and the account of what happened there. I'll, I'll pick back up in Genesis chapter 19, verse 12, if you want to read along. And, and as we read this, here's what we're looking for. Uh, I'm kind of obsessed right now with this idea that not everything in life is a dichotomy. We can hold multiple truths that maybe seem to be conflicting or contradicting in the same hands, and they're not always opposing. They might not perfectly work together, but they're not always opposing. And so as we read this, here's what we can, we're going to see and what we can know to be true of God. He is sovereign and he is in control. Uh, he sometimes just does things of his own will. He makes choices. And he gives us choices and allows us to be in relationship with him or not and gives us freedom to have influence. And we can trust that he's good. And it's in this crazy concept that we cannot put God in a box. So often you and I try to put God in a box so that we can understand him and so that we can control him. And God doesn't fit into a box of our spirituality or intellectual nature or understanding. He's God and we're not. His ways are his ways and they're above our ways. So as we read this, keep that in mind. Verse 12, then the angel said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, a son-in-law, your sons and daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people is so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. 
Uh, like we talked about last week, the first thing we need to understand about God is that he hears. Not just the holy or righteous or quote-unquote good people. God hears the outcry. God hears every one of us. He's capable of that. You don't have to have things right before God listens. He hears us. Verse 14 So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were going to marry his daughters. Get up, he said. Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. Verse 15, at daybreak, the angels urged Lot on, get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you'll be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated because of the Lord's compassion for him. God is compassionate. The men grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters. Then they brought him out and left him outside the city. Last week we talked about this. I don't envision that the grabbing of Lot's hand, his wife's hand, and his daughter's hands was like a stroll on the boardwalk by the beach. I don't think it was a peaceful grabbing. It was a grabbing against their will and dragging them, most likely, out of the city. And so what we talked about last week was the reality that God took these people someplace they did not want to go against their will, and that was good for them. Because if God didn't grab them and take them someplace they did not want to go against their will, it would have been very bad. They would have died. And so sometimes there's this mystery and there's this tension. Right after this, we'll read. They say, go to this place. And Lot goes, no, I'd rather go here. And they say, okay. There's choices. There's flexibility. We see that consistently throughout the scriptures. In any given situation, we can't know exactly how it's going to play out, but we can know God is sovereign and in control, and God gives us choices and flexibility, and however he determines to use his sovereignty and control and let us make choices, it will be good in his way, even if we don't understand it in the moment. Okay, we've got a bunch. Um, and they're in, uh, there, there's, there's a handful of categories because there's some themes, obviously, that um, even though the questions are subtly different than, um, and, and this, first, this first category has a lot to do with um, essentially what we were just talking about with the goodness of God. Um, if, if he's so good, then why all the suffering? Why all the hurting? Why all that? So we've got everything from you know, why ALS and its extreme suffering, ending lives in two to five years, it affects everyone around the ALS patient. Um, a number of those end of life, sort of my grandmother's got Alzheimer's right now and it's been brutal and so I get that. Same, um, it's hard to see God is good when the world seems to be getting worse every day. Um, climate change, war, poverty, the people who proclaim Christ the loudest in media act in ways that don't represent him well? How do you focus on how God is good when it feels like his actions and his followers are not anymore? Um, question somebody gets asked a lot is, God is good. Why do bad things happen to good people? One thing for believers to understand, but how would we communicate that to unbelievers? If God created Satan, did he then create evil? Uh, why did he create Satan when he pre-knew what Satan would do? Who created evil? Where did evil originate? And then why does uh, God continue to allow the extreme evil on earth to continue, abuse, etc.? How do we reconcile the idea of God being good with the proposition of eternal damnation, hell, for unbelievers? Uh, why does God command genocide in the Old Testament? Uh, if God is love, why is his judgment so harsh? And there's a couple others that would fall into the same category. So... 
I'll answer Landon. all of those at once. <laughs> you know, before I start, I thought of this because we got a couple very similar questions to this last gathering. And there's a, a book called Skeletons in God's Closet by Joshua Butler. Um, just the title, I think, is brilliant. We often think there's these skeletons in God's closet, and how can that be, and how do you reconcile uh, philosophically what's called the problem of evil? How do you reconcile this balance and mixture of God's judgment, which can seem very harsh at times, or perhaps, depending on the perspective, not harsh enough if bad things are happening to you or loved ones? Where does God's mercy and character come into play? So some significant questions that we cannot fully and deeply answer in in one little session this morning. So Skeletons in God's Closet, Joshua Butler, great book. Recommend it if you want to dive in uh, deeper to this. That was a lot of questions, so I kind of got to organize my thoughts here a little bit and answer some. One one perspective is this. I think context is king. So uh, I shared this uh, analogy last service because it came into my mind. I remember Three or four years ago, we were at a birthday party or something with my family and a bunch of other families, some friends and some not. And in that time, uh, the, the stage of life we were in, I remember really clearly, my son Ellis was just obsessed with me. I was like the only one he'd spend time with. He would choose me over mom almost every time. And that was great. I loved it. She didn't like that as much. She thought it would be different with her uh, only only son. And then we're at this, this party and... Uh, that was the, the season and stage of life. But for whatever reason, that day and this one tiny little moment in that day, I said, Alice, that's my, my son's name, come here, buddy. And he didn't want to. He didn't listen for whatever reason. And somebody there observed that. And in this one little moment with no context, totally isolated, they determined that because my son would not come to me in that moment, I must be abusing him as a father. Not only did they determine that, they decided what they needed to do in that moment was share that and spread that. And it was this horrendous thing. And I was furious, as you can imagine, right? So there was no context. Uh, Obviously, well, I I would hope, obviously, I don't think I'm a a perfect dad by any means, but a decent one and, and certainly not abusive. And so I think that's kind of a picture of what can happen as we seek to understand God's character in the scriptures. We read a little passage in Deuteronomy or Joshua about some horrendous things that happen, and we go, oh, wow, with no context, God is just evil and mass murdering and causes genocide and pain and harshness, let alone disease and sickness and pain. And we look at the the little small context and go, that's who God is. And we don't see the the whole picture. In a way, this uh, story here, this account with Sodom is actually a good account. I'm going to read a little bit more of it because I only read uh, a portion. I'm going to start in Genesis chapter 19 because it kind of paints the picture of how context is king. Genesis 19 verse 1. The same two angels entered Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting at Sodom's gate. The gate is the cultural uh, head point. It's where culture's defined. It's where the leadership teaches. It's where the sons and daughters learn what life will look like from this point. They're, they're sitting at Sodom's gate. When Lot saw them, he got up to meet them. He bowed with his face to the ground and said, My lords, turn aside to your servant's house, wash your feet, and spend the night. Then you can get up early and go on your way. No, they said, we would rather spend the night in the square. But Lot urged them so strongly that they followed him and went into his house. We'll read in a second why he urged them so strongly, because he knew the type of people that the city was filled with. Lot prepared a feast and baked unleavened bread for them, and they ate. 
Verse four, before they went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, that's really important. There's something being handed down from generation to generation to generation. We often read in the scriptures to the third and fourth generation, meaning a lifetime. Things are taught and passed on still to this day by generations good and bad. And so this tells us that's what's happening here. Before they went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population surrounded the house. They called out to Lot and said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Send them out to us so we can have sex with them. Verse six, Lot went out to them at the entrance and shut the door behind him. He said, don't do this evil, my brothers. This is all of the men in the city. Look, I've got two daughters. Now, their evil is going to be transferred to Lot, and he's going to make some horrendous, painful decisions on behalf of his daughters without them having any control in this moment. Lot goes out to the entrance. We're going to see evil multiplying exponentially and shut the door behind him. He said, don't do this evil, my brothers. Instead, he offers a different one. Look, I've got two daughters who have and had sexual relations with a man, I'll bring them out to you and you can do whatever you want to them. However, don't do anything to these men because they come under the protection of my roof. Verse nine, get out of the way, they said, adding, this one came here as a foreigner, but he's acting like a judge. Now we'll do more harm to you than to them. They put pressure on Lot and came up to break down the door. But the angels reached out, brought Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the entrance of the house, both young and old, with a blinding light so that they were unable to find the entrance. All of a sudden, there's a different understanding of what's happening in that city and why God, the Father, is going to destroy it because of the evil there. In every single instance, when we look at this type of mass justice, we'll call it, in the scriptures, there's typically hundreds, if not more, years of history of horrendous crimes taking place. If you look at the account of Joshua and the, the genocides that took place there, uh, parents were sacrificing their children to other gods. They were teaching their children, this is what we do. It just uh, continued and multiplied exponentially. And so uh, looking at the context of a situation provides a whole lot more understanding. Can that just justify and go, oh, now I fully understand? No. Part of what we have to do is look at God's character over time and trust he is faithful. I've yet to see him not be just. Do I understand everything perfectly? No, I can't put him in a box. But over time, as we look at all these different situations and how God judges, we can begin to trust that he does so fairly and with wisdom and applies the right amount of mercy in the right time and the right amount of judgment in the right time. Yeah, that's, that's super good. I think when you do look at God over time, whether that's historically or in the word, what, what you start to see is, is one of two things. You're going to focus in either on the moment, moments of his judgment that appear harsh or there's consequences for people, and that generates a lot of questions it has in my own journey. There's also opportunity for you to look at the exact same God over that exact same expanse of time and ask a completely different question. Why in the world is he so patient? Why didn't he bring this to an immediate stop the second that this happened? Why didn't he bust you or bring judgment on you or expose your sin this last week, the second that you did it? Why didn't he completely withhold Jesus from me and you and the whole world? You know? And, and you start to see there's an equal testimony of the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God and the patience of God and the mercy of God. And when he does show up, where we go, ooh, 
it, it's justice. And there's still truth. There's still, there's still goodness in it because like Glennon said, how long do you just wait for abuse to just keep going and going and going and going and going and going and go, whatever, it's no big deal, it's no big deal. Hitler, rapist, child abuser, whatever, it's no big deal until there's an end to it. This problem of, of evil has been there since. So to the question about did God create Satan? And, and yes, he did. Satan is a created being. And yet God gave us all free will. He's given us the ability to follow him, which is another expression of his goodness. Because if he doesn't give you the ability to say no to him, then you and I are just robots. We were created to be his pets, and then we don't have any choice in the matter. And yet, in, in the beauty of giving us choice, we experience his goodness. And for me, when I'm in a love relationship with someone who I can choose to be in that relationship, I wasn't forced into it, that's a whole different ballgame. I'm forced to love someone, that's, a, that's an entirely different experience. Well, that same freedom was extended even to angelic beings, and in that freedom of choice, then Lucifer chooses to rebel and takes a bunch with him, and there's consequences to that. And for a certain period in history, God is allowing a short leash. It, it's, it's expansive, it's having destructive powers in all of our lives, but make no bones about it, God's, God's still in control. And he knew that that was going to happen, but he also knew you were going to sin. And you were going to mess up. And he created you also. But he immediately stepped in with the rescue plan, a redemption plan, to make himself known, to pursue us in love, and to buy us back from the enemy. And so, yeah, it's hard right now to look around and see all the stuff that's going on. I, I, in my lifetime, it feels like the worst it's ever been. However, if you talk to people who lived through World War I and World War II, and we're watching hundreds of thousands, I mean, globally, if you go back even to times in the scriptures where there's rampant temple prostitution and these disgusting practices within houses of worship and all these icky, disgusting, I mean, it's been back in Noah's day, as Lana was talking, I mean, the scripture says that the only thought that man had all the time was evil, all the time, constantly. And we know also from the scripture that God's eyes are looking to and fro, seeing whose hearts are devoted to him that he might, so in the midst of all everybody being off the deep end, God's still looking open and willing to reach out for anybody, you know, and uh, a Rahab in the middle of her culture that was completely anti-God, God sees her and steps in. God's still doing that right here and right now, and it's really easy for us to maybe mistake um, God's freedom that he gives us, tremendous freedom. Romans 1 talks about that. God gives people over to their intentions. He goes, okay, I see where your heart's at. I see what your desires are really at. If that's what you want, then go for it. In an ironic way, that's his goodness. 
Because it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. He only gives us over to the stuff to see that the little G gods that we pursue aren't very good gods compared to him. And so if you've got friends that aren't believers or you yourself are here today, you go, I don't know if I believe this, totally understand. But you can look around and the evidence is all around you that people are hurtful. You've been hurt. You've probably hurt other people. It's a broken down, beat up world. It's been that way since sin entered the world. Now here's the good news. And it's not found in me and you. And it's not found in governments. It's not found in this and that. God can use all those things to bring some amazing good here and now. But the good is found in, like Peter talks about, God is patient. And he is not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to salvation. And so don't forget that his patience leads to salvation. It leads to repentance. It leads to his mercy. So every single day that he's not you know, bringing the lightning bolt, so to speak, or another flood that he promised he would not do, is another day for us to go, hey, God's not the problem. I am. We are. And let him flood his mercy into the, the midst of, of that. That's good. Those, I think, what Ron and I both just spoke to answers more of the God's justice against evil in this world, evil acts that humans partake in. Less did that did our answers uh, address the question of, of sickness and death, suffering, of and suffering that isn't related to uh, other humans causing it. And one of uh, the things I think we often make a mistake of thinking is that sin is just the list of do's and don'ts. God created it at the beginning of time, and so he punishes sin and sometimes forgives us whatever it is in our relationship to this list of do's and don'ts. So there's specific individual sins. And there's certainly some sins that God lists, but I think a bigger understanding of sin is needed as it relates to suffering. Sin is really what I like to think of as a disease. It's a disease within our humanity that's passed on from generation to generation that causes us to put self first to the extent that we're willing to harm others. So that's part of it. But it also is just decaying our humanity. Sin is this disease from the moment it entered with Adam and Eve in the garden and, and they had to exit the garden. Sin started to distort our humanity and this world and health on earth and in our bodies. And I love this picture in the Gospels when Jesus' friend Lazarus dies and everybody around him is weeping. Lazarus's sisters are weeping. And then we read these, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And you start processing and you go, why did he weep? Well, he knew he was about to uh, raise Lazarus from the dead. So that's not why per se. And as you really begin to dive in and study through those words, Jesus wept. The most likely conclusion is that he looked around and saw what this world had become both how people would uh, continue to treat one another. Lazarus would die again, and I believe it's at the hands of those who hated Jesus. 
And just because of sickness and death and disease, and Jesus wept in that moment because it was broken, and that's not what he made this good world to be. Yeah, Jesus died to restore this brokenness that many of us feel and many of your loved ones feel and to restore that one day. And that leads to one of the the other questions uh, about God's timing. His timing is not our timing. And so Part of the way we address suffering in this world is not to minimize it or pretend it doesn't exist or just get through it, but to recognize that it is not the end. Jesus will have the final word with suffering, and if he conquered death, there's nothing he can't conquer. He's conquered death and sin and Satan, and one day he'll restore this world fully into what it's meant to be, physically, emotionally, relational, spiritually, in every way. That's good. A couple quick ones as we wrap it up. Um, There were a couple similar here. Is God confined by the boundaries of reason and knowledge? Um, similar was what's God's relationship to time. Some conversation about predestination we won't get into fully here. But followed question on the same card. Does God exist and operate on a linear timeline? And so God is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent. So he is all-powerful and he's all present and he's all-knowing. Scripture tells us that his ways are not our ways, so I don't believe that he is confined by uh, boundaries of reason and, and knowledge. Deuteronomy 29, 29, I think it says that the, there's the secret things that belong to the Lord, and then there's the stuff that he's revealed. So there's, his ways are different. He's revealed what we need to know, and then the rest is, is him. And any amount of Western thought and whatnot reason can be helpful, but he's certainly not bound by our uh, understanding or confined to our reason. Um, and then back to that Peter passage about, you know, that one about um, a day is like a thousand years with the Lord and a thousand years is like a day. God, God operates in a whole different time plane than we do. He, he is outside of time and without getting crazy metaphysical, which is not my strong suit, he's not bound by by time, and he can uh, operate um, in this eternal spectrum. The fact that he is eternal, he, he exists before our definition of time began. God existed, and so he can operate in and out. That's why I like my, my dad that passed a, a heart attack at 40 years old, too sudden, knew the Lord. All I know is he goes to be with the Lord and I don't know exactly what that looks like because there's eschatology and end time stuff that we would all differ on. But um, all I know is he's with the Lord. Well, he falls asleep. I don't know if for him, um, the time that he passed away and fell asleep in the Lord and he's with Christ. And for me and my family, we're sitting around here missing him for decades now and sad, and then someday we'll pass. And that feels like a long time because we're walking this linear timeline. And then God's got what he's going to do. He's going to come back, and he's going to call the dead up with him, and he's going to the second coming for believers and this, that, and the other thing, and usher in a kingdom at a whole different level. That's going to be phenomenal. For, for the Lord, that might just be a twinkling of an eye. It might just be a breath. It might be a snap because he's not operating in this 24-hour time cycle sort of thing. And I wonder if my dad with him 
is in a similar sort of capacity, which then would help me understand eternity with the Lord. If anybody's like, oh man, eternity, we're going to float in the clouds forever and ever and ever. But if it's more outside of time and not measured the same, then it's not like boredom to me is just an expression of like nothing to do over 24 hour cycles. (laughs) But if it's eternity being outside of time, then I don't even know what I'm saying anymore, but it, (laughs) it's, uh, I don't think he's bound by much. I think we're going to be surprised by just how huge he is. Yeah. Last question, and we'll wrap up. It says, what would you recommend to parents who have teens with influences or struggles, making them question God's goodness and have lost interest in church? That one's tough. I have quite a few thoughts on this. Um, I think the first is that I would be deeply honest. God does not need to be defended. And so I would be brutally honest and say, let's go on a journey together and bring up some really good questions. There's a lot of reasons to question whether or not God is good. So as it relates to God, I'd be deeply honest and walk into the journey with them, asking and trusting that the Spirit will lead and provide the right answers in the right timing. I'd also reference some of what we talked today. What is it in their lives, these influences or struggles that are causing on a foundational level them to believe that God is not good. I'd walk into that and go, is that actually God or is that a different source? Is God actually working and the only one that's capable of removing what is broken and what is causing this this type of struggle? As far as it relates to the church, I'd also be deeply honest about that. Sometimes this can be boring. Sometimes this isn't great. Uh, Many times the church has failed and many times we will fail as a church. And so the church is made of people. What I would work to model in your own life for your kids and what we need to model as a church, not just the leadership, but everyone who is a part of our restoration family, is not that we have it together, not that we're super spiritual or righteous, but that we're really good at repenting. I think if you model repentance as a parent, that's probably going to be the most effective way to say that there's hope and truth and goodness in the church. Not that we have it together. We'll see that over time. But repentance saying this is about the work of Jesus, not our work. And through that, that's unique. People claim to have the answers and then it never comes through. We don't claim, or we do claim to have an answer, but not that we're going to fix it ourselves. We just know the one who is. Yeah. And that, I, I would just dovetail with that by saying, Sometimes coming back to the irreducible minimum of our faith has to do with Jesus and not so much the practices of the church, although those are real and crucial. It's not so much all the ins and outs of the doctrine, although those are very, very, very important. But I know in my own journey, I've got to come back to Jesus. I've got to wrestle with Did he actually come to earth? Is there evidence that would support that? If he did, then is he who he said he was? Is he really the son of God? And when he went to the cross for us on this particular week that we're celebrating coming into this week, and if he did in fact rise from the dead, and he did it to conquer sin and conquer death, then... I've got a whole lot of reverse engineering to do with my life. If Jesus is who he said he was, then he is incredibly good and powerful. And what he has done for me and you in expressing that love and ushering us into his kingdom is immeasurable. 
And there's a lot of other stuff that the world throws at us that can be confusing and seem awful, is awful, but not Jesus. And that's why we take time every single week to respond with communion because it's a tangible reminder that Jesus gave us of his sacrifice for us. Uh, the, the bread that represents his body, which is broken for us, his, the drink that represents his blood that was shed for us. And, and everything hinges for us on God who loved us so much that he gave his one and only son. God that while we were yet sinners, laid down his life for us. God that invites you and me into communion with himself every single day, despite our sin. That's a very, very good God as seen so vividly in Jesus. And so we're gonna wrap up this time briefly here as we invite you to take communion with us. You've got the elements off to the sides here and one station there in the back if that's easier for you to get to. We invite you as the worship team comes forward to grab these elements, take them back to your seat. Remember the love of Jesus for you. Just spend that time with him being honest about where you're at with him. You can take communion on your own when you're ready. And we'll lift our voices here in song, unified together. We are so thankful for you guys and just so appreciative that you would join us on this journey as we've been navigating this, uh, this series of uh, Erasing God. And if you missed a couple of weeks, we just encourage you, jump back, go and, and re-listen or listen back through. I think this is really fundamental and important for us as, as the people of God, as people who are practicing the way of Jesus. Um, I think it's uh, such a high value for us to begin to ruthlessly eliminate the lies that we've bought into, um, lies of old religion and moralism that have not aligned with actually the heart of God. It's the Holy Spirit who leads us forward um, in alignment with his word. And so... Um, thankful, thankful that we've been able to navigate this. It has been so fun to process through stories and testimonies as people are working through their history as God is highlighting areas in their heart and beginning to, to set people free and lead them forward. And what an honor, what a privilege for us as the body of Christ to join together and to walk forward practicing the way of Jesus. And if this is your first time tuning in or listening, appreciate that. Thanks for joining us. Um, we are Restoration Church in Prescott, Arizona. And uh, if you want to learn a little bit more about us, you can go to restorationaz.org. And we say this every time, but we mean it. It's real. This is very important. Remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.